Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all of the things which I'm accused of by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them, even to foreign cities, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king. Along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified, sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In this passage, Paul gives A clear, powerful description of his testimony. The occasion isn't necessarily a happy one. But Paul welcomes the opportunity to be able to share Jesus with his accusers, with the Roman court, and with King Agrippa. 
He is standing trial before the Roman governor Portius, Festus. He has been charged with three crimes. There's a personal charge. He's a plague and a pestilent fellow, it says in Acts chapter 24, verse 5. There's a political charge, sedition, leading an illegal religion, creating dissension among the Jews and throughout the world, and being a ringleader of this burgeoning sect called the Nazarenes. He's been charged with a doctrinal charge, profaning the temple in Acts chapter 24, verse 6. He was taken by armed guard. Some 500 soldiers have provided an escort from Jerusalem to Caesarea for him to stand trial. And he's given permission to tell his story. And the story of Paul's conversion is also found in Acts chapter 9, where we read about his vendetta against the saints in verses 1 and 2, the vision of the Son of God in verses 3 through 9, a visitation by a servant of God named Ananias in, in verses 10 through 25. And when you hear his testimony, it's amazing. It's the story of a religious Jew on a murderous mission to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And suddenly and permanently, his life is going to be changed by a heavenly vision. He's a Jew by birth. He's a Roman by citizenship. And in brief, his conversion can be summarized by three simple statements. Number one, he saw a light in verse 13. Number two, he heard a voice in verse 14. And number three, he obeys that voice in verse 16. In one sense, his story is the story of every single sinner who comes to Christ. A sinner who comes to Christ isn't simply persuaded by the historical story of a person who lives and then who is unfortunately crucified on a cross. It isn't simply the compilation of a group of information that you receive, but something powerful, something tangible happens to the person who is saved. It's a story about change. It's a story about a supernatural transformation. Paul has a heavenly vision. He has an encounter with Christ. And the first thing that we see is an opportunity, a permission to speak. It says in verse 1, then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Note what the text says. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Do you understand what's happening in the text? When he stretches out his hand, he's stretching out his chained hands. His hands are bound. They are chained. He is a prisoner. He doesn't have a pulpit. He doesn't have a church. 
He doesn't have a radio program or a television program. He is a prisoner of Rome. And the chains are a metaphor for his suffering, for his persecution. He is willing to bear this suffering and this persecution if it will bring an opportunity to speak. And it's easy to imagine King Agrippa sitting on his royal chair, his beautiful and broken sister Bernice standing right next to him. And if you could go back in time and space, you would, you would see this beautiful hallway. There would be court officials. There would be Roman guards, there would be Roman security details, they're surrounding the Roman governor. People are everywhere coming to listen to the trial. And in chapter 25, the Jewish leaders had asked the governor to transport Paul back to Jerusalem for trial because here was their plan. He has already addressed the issue. The Jews have sat and wait for him to return back to Jerusalem so that they can kill him. Festus finds out about the plan, refuses to let Paul go back to Jerusalem, instead begs him begs him to continue the trial in Jerusalem. But Paul will refuse. And he will exercise his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And then Festus will receive a visit, a royal visit from King Herod Agrippa II and Bernice. They strike up a conversation in chapter 25. They speak about Paul's appeal in chapter 25, verses 20 through 21. And then Agrippa expresses his desire to meet the political prisoner, Paul, and to speak to him. His sister Bernice will also play an important role in the future of the Jewish people. Bernice, his sister, is going to have a torrid love affair with a Roman general who will come to the country in the not-too-distant future. Herod Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great who killed the babies in Bethlehem. He's the son of the Herod who murdered the apostle James in Acts chapter 12. Bernice lives with her brother and is suspected of having a relationship with him that is less than pure. And the Bible, of course, condemns incest in Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20. The Roman emperor has granted legal jurisdiction of what goes on in the temple over to the Jewish leader Agrippa II. So it only makes sense that Festus is going to want Agrippa's opinion on how to deal with this person, Paul. And Festus feels certain that if there's some violation about anything that, that has nothing to do with the Roman law and everything to do with Jewish customs, that maybe they'll figure out a way to work it out. But Paul's arrest and chains give him an opportunity to, to speak. And don't be surprised if pain or suffering or tragedy might give you an opportunity to say things or speak things or provide things or share things that you would not be able to do under normal circumstances. 
There's something about pain and suffering and difficulty. Sometimes when something goes terribly wrong in our life and sometimes when something goes terribly right in our life, we are given an opportunity for people to say to us, tell me your story. And Paul is given this opportunity to tell his story. I'll never forget at Columbine High School after the horrible and terrible tragedy that took place. There was a news conference that that took place with Misty Bernal, whose daughter Cassie was horribly, terribly murdered. And in the course of the interview, um, she started sharing with the reporters, the television reporters, they're the story of her daughter, of, of how she loved the Lord and how she served the Lord, how she was a Christian who loved the Lord Jesus and the most horrible and terrible, stupid thing that you can imagine being said by a stupid media. A person makes the most stupid thing I think I've ever heard in my life. He says, what gives you the right to speak and about this God and about Jesus? And she, her response was unbelievable. She said, when your daughter has been shot in the face, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> Trust me, none of us wants to experience that kind of pain. And that kind of terror. But sometimes under the worst circumstances imaginable, you might be given an opportunity to open your mouth. And look what Paul says when he speaks. I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Because today I shall appear for myself before you concerning the things which I'm accused of by the Jews, especially because you're an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Paul concedes King Agrippa's expertise in the customs and questions of the Jewish people. And Paul pleads for patience. He basically says, this may take a little time, so bear with me. The Christian is often faced with the question, when I'm given an opportunity to speak, what should I say? How should I say it? When should I speak? And when should I stay silent? Paul understands his audience. Paul acknowledges Agrippa's understanding of the customs and questions of the Jewish people. He then politely requests patience. Your permission might take an entirely different form. But don't be surprised if someone asks you to tell your story. Paul will do exactly that in verses 4 through 16. In broad terms, he's going to describe his life before Christ. He lived the life of a strict Pharisee in verses 4 and 5. A very orthodox life in verses 6 through 8. A hostile and bitter life in terms of hatred and animosity towards Christians and 
Christ in verses 9 through 11. He speaks of this heavenly vision. This encounter that he has with Jesus Christ in verses 12 through 18. In verse 4 he says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Paul just simply reminds everyone there, my story is not an unknown story. It's one that has been heard over and over and over again. Paul says, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. In other words, he's not some crackpot person. He has religious training. He's grown up as a Pharisee. And a Pharisee, of course, is the radical wing of Judaism at the time who fundamentally and almost without exception are religiously observant. He says, and I now stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. In a single sentence, he sums up Everything that God has revealed to the Jews in the past. When he talks about the hope that was revealed to God. He's talking about the hope that was spoken of in the law and the prophets and the writings. And he says, I stand judged for the hope of the promise. To this promise are 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day. Hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible to you that God raises the dead? And from the very start, he brings up this uncomfortable historical reality. That the dead don't always stay dead. That sometimes they come back to life. Now I want you to think about this for a moment, just for a moment. Paul is a Jew. He is a religious Jew. He is an observant Jew. He is a Jew that believes in the resurrection. But as a hostile Jew and an angry Jew, he does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead at this point in the testimony. But he will come to that. And so when he says to King Agrippa, why should it be thought incredible to you that God raises the dead? This was a line of demarcation that was argued throughout the nation. In verse 9 he says, indeed I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He found them. He caught them, he persecuted them, he tortured them, and when they stood trial, he voted against them. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. How do you compel someone to blaspheme? The way you compel them is you coerce them through intimidation and threat. That's exactly what he did. Renounce Jesus. Renounce him. He is not the king. He is not the Lord. He didn't rise from the dead. In order to get them to blaspheme, he is going to have to manipulate them and force them to say something that isn't true. He says, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
While thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. In other words, he is a man on a mission with proper authorizations. Look what it says in verse 13. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The Lord sees Saul's hostility towards the Christian and says that it is, in fact, hostility towards him. What are the goads? In the ancient world, men would use a very long stick to poke or goad or prick animals to motivate them, jab them, to go in a specific direction. These are the cuts of conscience. This is the jab of conviction in Paul's heart. This is the invisible stabs that were taking place that may have begun as early as being a witness to the execution of Stephen in the earlier part of the book of Acts. He sees this happening. He understands something is wrong. Something is wrong in his life and in his heart. Someone has said that conscience is what hurts when everything else around you feels so good. How is it possible that your life can be so good or so wonderful on the outside and so horrible on the inside? Paul's testimony in verse 15, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. There's no escape when the Lord speaks. And in verse 16, it says, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I want to reveal to you. Here is Saul who's going to become Paul's commission. He will serve. He will testify. His testimony is going to incorporate those simple elements. I live the life of a Pharisee, verses 4 through 11. I saw the light, verses 12 through 13. I heard a voice, verses 14 through 18. I wasn't disobedient to what I saw, verse 19 through 21. That's not just simply a religious belief system. It is a testimony. A testimony, as I've said repeatedly, is something that happens to a person. You know, in the Bible, remember what a witness is. I've said it repeatedly to you. A witness is a person who has a knowledge of the facts. They have a reputation for honesty. And then they have a willingness to Tell the truth. How does Saul become Paul? He gives a brief but powerful sequence. He speaks of the life that he lived. He speaks of the light that he saw. He speaks of the voice that he heard. He speaks of the call on his life. 
And what if I were to share with you that these are the things that we incorporate in our life as we begin to share with people what God has done in our life? Saul grew up in a deeply religious world. That wasn't the world that I grew up in. Even though my mother converted to Catholicism in order to marry my, my father, they weren't religious by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, prior to the time I was in elementary school, I never ever remember ever, either my mother or my father, ever taking me to church. Paul is going to, of course, concede the theological possibility of a resurrection, but it certainly doesn't apply in this particular instance to his thoughts and ideas about this burgeoning group called the Jesus movement. And remember, Paul remembers that it's midday when he saw the light from heaven. He remembers exactly where he was. He remembers exactly what he was doing. The presence of the bright light, the presence of the heavenly vision is found in all three accounts of his testimony. In chapter 9, in chapter 22, in chapter 26. Now some of us remember with vivid accuracy where we were and what we were doing. The night that we got saved or the morning that we got saved or the day that we got saved. For some of us, we can't cite a day. We can't see an hour. We can't, like a chapter in verse in the Bible, we don't always are able to tell the exact moment when night became day, when death became life. The voice from heaven is also heard in all three accounts. The words of Jesus, the revealed words of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, this formerly dead Jesus, alive. And some translations read, he spoke in Hebrew. Others say Aramaic. The Greek text literally says a dialect of Hebrew, which has caused most scholars to think it's almost certainly Aramaic. Jesus makes clear Paul's hostility and violent opposition. The debate regarding the language isn't nearly as important as what the text is actually telling us. That Jesus spoke. God speaks. There is an invisible, eternal God who speaks. Who's spoken throughout human history. Who the writer of Hebrews said, he in times past spoke through the prophets, but he has in this last day spoken to us by his own dear son. The Lord desires to reveal himself. He wants to reveal his will and he wants to reveal his love. He's spoken in a burning bush, in a fiery column, on stone tablets, a talking donkey riding on the wall. His voice and message has taken a lot of different tracks. But the real issue isn't whether or not God speaks. Or even that he speaks in a language that we can understand. 
but whether we're willing to listen to what he has to say. And he's, Saul is overwhelmed, the constant conviction, the bright light, the unmistakable voice of Jesus, the deepening conviction that what if this is true? What if this movement is true? What if this Jesus is true? What if the testimony that Saul has witnessed for so long turns out to be true? And he listens to the voice. And he responds to the voice. And in verse 17 it says, I'll deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul speaks during the course of his testimony that he is going to be delivered from both Jew and Gentile. Why? Because he's standing before both Jews and Gentiles at that very moment, holding out his hands, which are covered in chains. And he explains his commission. Paul is commissioned by Jesus himself. Jesus himself said, I now send you. To open their eyes. Why does Jesus say that? Because their eyes are shut. To turn them from darkness to light. Why? Because they're in darkness. From the power of Satan. There's a supernatural spiritual bondage. That each and every person apart from God. Apart from Christ. Experience in reality. And the voice says that they may receive forgiveness of sin. Because that's the true problem that human beings have. People apart from Christ are blind in spiritual darkness because of their sin. Unforgiven because of the sentence of death. People all around you. Beautiful people. Elegant people with varying degrees of morality, generous people. But something is horribly and terribly wrong inside of their life. And when I read this, I thought about all of the permissions that I've been given throughout my life to speak, to tell my story. It's usually occurred during a time of great difficulty or challenge. I remember the very first time I ever gave my testimony. I was <laughs> 16 years old. I had only been a Christian for one week. It just so happened that my best friend had come over because he always came over on the weekends because he had a horrible crush on my sister. And he asked me what I did last week and why I seemed so different. And I told him. But he already knew part of my story, maybe a part of the story that you don't know. You see, I, uh, I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. March 24th, 1956. 
My mother met and married my father when she was 14 years old. My mother and father went to Mississippi because it was illegal to get married in Louisiana at the age of 14. At 15, she conceives me. At 16, she has me. That's a picture of me at four months old. The girl on the left holding me is my mother. She had just turned 17 in, on June 29th, and that photo was taken in August. The lady to the, to the right of her is my granny, who you hear me talk about all the time. She's 36 or 7 years old in that picture. My mother and my father had a very difficult relationship. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was praying and preparing this is how so much, as I was praying and preparing, I so do not want to disrespect my mother, and I so don't want to disrespect my father. I don't think any parent actually becomes a parent with the hope of ruining their child's life. Is it possible that parents make horrible mistakes, terrible mistakes, sinful mistakes that hurt their children for a very long time? I think that the answer is yes. And so when I tell you this, I don't in any way want you to misinterpret what I'm saying. I think that my mother and my father, given their age, their immaturity, and the difficulties and challenges that they face, did their very, very best. My father was from Sicily. He came over here after World War II. My father did not speak any English whatsoever when he first landed on the shores of the United States of America. At the age of 12 and 13, he quickly left school and started running the streets. He learned the language. And my father became involved in a lot of things that were less than legal. My mother and my father faced constant challenges because of my immoral father's lifestyle. When I was three years old, my mother and my father separated. The first memory that I ever have is being on a train with my mother. She's holding my brother in her arms. I'm only a little more than three years old. I'm fast approaching four years old. My mother sells the worthless furniture that we have so that she can escape from my father and go live with her mother and father who are in California. We're very poor, and this is a very difficult time. And I remember, this is my first memory, of a conductor coming down the aisle saying, tickets please, tickets please, and my mother bursting into tears because she doesn't have a ticket. She doesn't have a ticket to ride the train to go where that she needs to go. And she's sobbing, holding the children in her arms. And the guy is kind enough to let us move through the state of Texas, then through the state of New Mexico, then through, no, it was Texas and then California, maybe Arizona and then California. But we finally make it to the Mojave Desert. In the Mojave Desert, 
which is a, there was a place called Apple Valley in Victorville. You may not know that place, but the Mojave Desert in, in 1958 or thereabouts was just a wilderness. There was nothing there. And the little town that we wound up staying in was called Hesperia. And at the time, there were less than 5,000 people living there. There was a main street. There was a grocery store. There was a liquor store. There wasn't very much there. From the t my, my mother and my father attempted to reconcile to no avail. My mother, during the attempt of the reconciliation, had yet a third child. So my mother had three children before she was 19 years old. She had no education because she dropped out of high school in order to have me and my brother and my sister. So economic opportunities were few and far between. I remember one of my other vivid memories before I, I entered kindergarten, stealing my mother's tip money when she was a waitress. We would, my brother and I would watch her bury the tip jar in the backyard, and then we would dig it up, and we would take coins out of there in order to buy ice cream for ourselves. But as you can imagine, growing up in that kind of world would prove to be very, very difficult. I remember seeing my father once from the time I was six years old till the time I was 12 years old. I basically grew up in a world without a father. And because I grew up in a world without a father, there was a certain measure of bitterness and anger that began to well up inside of my heart. Not only was I skeptical and cynical towards almost everyone and everything, I was also deeply, deeply concerned because I lived in a world where there were no boundaries, there were no borders, there were, there were no rules that I sort of got to make up my own rules. Imagine the one time that you see your father between the age of 6 and 12 and you overhear the conversation that he has with your mother and that is, how long am I going to have to pay for the mistake that I made so long ago? And you realize that you are the mistake. And the pain and the anger and the bitterness wells up inside of you. That was my world. Fast forward to high school. Because that was my world, I was involved in a lot of things that a lot of kids were involved in, in the late 60s and the early 70s. It was a lifestyle of wickedness and sin. It was a lifestyle that didn't really include religion unless you want to count mysticism as a religion and you want to count witchcraft as, as a religion because early on I thought about that the world in which I lived in, it didn't make sense that, that there couldn't be some sort of supernatural reality, the possibility of some sort of supernatural reality. But because I lived in a world where no boundaries and no rules, I pretty much did whatever I thought I could get away with. But sometimes the animosity and the anger would spill over into my family and into my school. I've said to you on numerous occasions that in high school I was voted most likely to go to hell. And it's true. And the reason why is because of my unceasing bitterness and anger towards Christians and Christianity. 
You see, I wasn't one of those people who was just simply against Christ and Christians. I was one of those people who felt that it was my obligation to set them straight. And a group of people in my high school began to pray for me. Two cheerleaders, Debbie Castellon, Vicki Harris, if you're watching, thank you, thank you, thank you, I'm forever grateful. And a varsity basketball player named David McCachran. They got together and they actually began to pray. Who on this campus, who is the person least likely to go to heaven? Doesn't that sound a lot like most likely to go to hell to you? Who's the person least likely to go to heaven? And they began to pray for me. And they began to pray. And they began to ask God for an open door. And the open door came with a Christian concert at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And David McCachran approached me and he basically said, hey, do you want to go to a concert? He didn't say it was a Christian concert. And I thought, I was very deeply suspicious of him anyway. And I thought, no, this is not for me. And then he goes, two cheerleaders will be going. And I, now I'm starting to get, maybe, maybe I'll go. Cheerleaders, yes. The thing that sealed the deal was food. Oh, by the way, I'll buy you dinner. I know, shame to say it's 16 years old, free food. Yeah, there was only thing, one thing I liked more than food, that was free food. So we begin a journey down to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I am, again, deeply suspicious and really reluctant. Because they started talking a little bit about this God and this Christ and this Christianity stuff. But I asked them questions. Are you telling me that everyone who doesn't believe the way you believe, they're going to go to hell? And it's interesting because I was tr trying to pick a fight. I was trying to have an argument. And God in his grace and his mercy put the right people at the right time with someone like me. The person who was driving, he, would, he basically said, I don't know, man, but you'll see. <laughs> and I said, are you going to tell me that all Muslims, all Hindus... All people who don't share your outlook and your faith, they're going to hell. And he goes, I don't know, man, but you'll see. What about the problem of pain and suffering? How do you explain this broken world? How do you explain the wickedness and the brokenness that exists on the planet Earth? He goes, I don't know, man, but you'll see. <laughs> and by this time, I am furious. Because... It's all starting to close in on me. Because if there's no argument that I can win and I can satisfy myself, then I might have to actually go to this place. And I wound up going to this Christian concert and there was a guy who was preaching and I remember again like it was yesterday. The person had long curly hair and he was wearing overalls. And he was preaching from John chapter 11. It was the story of... Lazarus, almost all of you know the story. Lazarus is dead. This is the tent where he, we drove to. Lazarus is dead. And the guy is preaching. And he basically, I need to tell you an important part of the story. He took us to dinner, but I ditched him. 
we were at some sort of Del Taco or Taco Bell or something like that that was across the street from this tent. And I thought, I can't be with these people. I can't, I, even if I have to walk home, which was two hours away, if I have to walk home, I'm going to walk home. And um, as you can see, it's, it, it's, it's fairly well attended. And so I ditched them, but I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can get a ride after this nonsense is over with. And so I sneak into this tent and I have no idea where they are. And I'm hearing the person preach from John chapter 11. And he's preaching and, and he basically says, you know, if you go to India today, there's a shrine to the Buddha. And there in this little shrine is one single tooth that's left of the, of the Buddha because the rest of him is, is dust. The only thing that survived is his tooth. And I go, yeah, yeah, make fun of what you don't understand. And he goes, if you go to the tomb in Mecca or Medina and in Arabia and you, you can find the tomb of the prophet Muhammad. I said, yeah, yeah, make fun of what you don't understand. And he said, but if you go to Jerusalem, you'll find that it's an empty tomb. And I go, yeah, right. And the person began to preach from John chapter 11, and I'll never forget, I'll never forget, as, as he's preaching the message and he's telling the story, the heartbreaking story of a person who's died and the two broken sisters who are weeping and crying because of the horror and the terrible thing that has happened to their brother. And they had reached out and and asked Jesus to come, and he had delayed his coming. And you know the story, because in John chapter 11, you'll remember, he says to the sister, do you understand that I'm the resurrection and the life? And he that believes in me, even if he were dead. And she goes, yes, yes, we, we understand that he'll come back to life. And, and we understand that at the last day, all of that's going to, to come. And Jesus said, no, no. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to remove the stone. And there was a particular portion in, in John's gospel that I'll never forget because at that particular moment in the text, <laughs> the sister says to Jesus, but Lord, he stinketh in the old King James. But even I at 16 know what stinketh means. And it was as if the Holy Spirit took those words and put them inside of my heart. And I heard a voice. And the voice said, you stinketh. And I thought it was, you know, teenage hygiene. No, you stinketh. There's something dead, wrong, empty inside of your heart. The wickedness, the anger, the bitterness, the sin, like a deep and disgusting cloud started crowding out my heart and I realized it, it was as if I could even smell the odor of death. I don't know if you've ever smelled a dead person's body or the odor of death, but it is exactly that. It is a pungent, disgusting smell that is overwhelming. And just for a brief moment, just for a brief moment, I paused to listen. And as the person said, and then Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And you'll remember the story how Lazarus comes forth from the, the grave. And Jesus said, release him. 
And that's exactly what happens. And for just one moment, just for one moment, I thought if Jesus, if Jesus can bring a dead, rotting, decomposing corpse back to life, I wonder if he could save me. And you know, it was at that moment, it was at that precious moment, it was at that moment, it wasn't the threat of hell. It wasn't even a deserved punishment, which I knew that my sins deserved. I knew that my sin had brought death on my heart and in my life. But there was just a moment inside of my head where I wondered whether or not if Jesus could bring this dead person back to life, if he could bring me back to life. And the person preaching said, I want you to know that if you feel like you're dead inside of your heart, Jesus can bring you back to life. He said, I'm going to invite you to come forward and receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Now, again, at this tent, there are literally thousands of people there. On March 3rd, 1973, three people went forward. And I was one of those three. Three people. The person preaching that night later told me that he thought it was a bust. It's a great, it's a disaster when you put this much time and this much effort into an event and only three people come forward. But I came forward that night to receive Christ as my Savior. And I remember walking and across the tent, I heard the two cheerleaders scream at the top of their voice. And they started like a Jesus cheer. And everybody stood to their, their feet. And, they, and, I'm, and I'm, I go down and I, and I start to pray. And I remember vividly the, the, the prayer about that I was a sinner in need of a savior. And that, that would Jesus come into my life? And would he change my life? And, and would he take this sin from my life? And would he give me life and, and goodness inside of my heart? And it was as if the weight of the world began to lift from my shoulders. And that night, on March 3rd, 1973... The rain started falling in Orange County and we got back into the car and we drove to the desert where we lived. And the next week my friend came by and I told him this story. And he was so angry. He pushed me up against my bedroom wall and he said, you should shut up and stop talking about Jesus. You're not even a good Catholic. And he was right. But I said to him, Skip, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to tell you the truth. You know me. Something happened. This Jesus isn't just simply alive from the dead. He can come into your heart. He can save you. He can redeem you. He can cleanse you. Later that summer, my friend Skip Heitzig accepted Christ as his savior. He went on to become the pastor of the fastest growing church in America. You see, the most important conversation I may have ever had in my life was the week after I got saved, when Jesus became real to me. He loved me, 
and he saved me. And I shared my story. Paul, of course, shares his story. And the whole world becomes a different place. You know, it's interesting to me. God in his grace and his mercy saves people like you and I. William Booth describes his own conversion this way. He says, I remember as if it were yesterday, the rolling away from my heart, the guilty burden, and then going on to serve my God in my generation from that hour. At the end of the text, Festus stands up and he cries, Paul! All of your learning has made you mad. You're a nutcase. You're off of your rocker. This story, it's unbelievable. And Paul said, it might be unbelievable to you, but it's true. God saves people from their sin. I'm hoping that in the not-too-distant future, you'll have an opportunity to tell your story about how you saw the light, about how you heard a voice, about how you answered a call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful that you're in the business of changing people's lives. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have, that we can stand here and testify to the reality of a good God who saves people from their sin. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness, and thank you for your kindness, and thank you for your generosity. Lord, thank you for all of the people who prayed (laughs) that you could be saved, that we could be saved. Lord, at this time, we just want to bow our head just for a moment and express our gratitude for each and every person that you used in our life to bring us to a knowledge of the truth. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that person, for him or her, who might still be in that dark place, in that empty place, in that sinful place. And they're wondering if Jesus could save someone like them. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would do what only you can do, and that's reach out to that person. Speak to that person's heart and remind them of your love and your willingness to forgive them. And Lord, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer of forgiveness and hope that they would, like I did so long ago, invite Jesus to come into their heart in simplicity and humility and purity acknowledge that something has gone horribly and terribly wrong in their life and that Jesus can solve that problem that he's willing to save you and redeem you and give you a brand new life and if that's you You know you've never received Christ. You know that there's something horribly and terribly wrong and you've become convinced that only Jesus can fix it. Just raise your hand. 
And like I did so long ago, you can experience his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness and his love. Is that you? You know, so long ago, so few people responded to the call as well. But God and his grace and his mercy is still in the business of changing people's lives. So Lord, again, I pray for these men and women. Thank you for their love. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the permission to tell my story. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.